Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, March 24th. Today's podcast focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm Shayna Walsh. And I'm Isabel Danzis. And here are this week's feature stories. Every month, WFUV brings you our long-running program, Cityscape. Cityscape aims to encapsulate the people, places, and vibes of New York City. When we think about guided tours in New York City, we often think of big bus tours that showcase attractions like Times Square and Rockefeller Center. But tour guide Kay Crombie shows off a different part of the city. My co-host Isabel Danzis has more. The city asylums, which were here, here, and at Heart Island, just off the Bronx, it's the current Potter's Field for New York City. The reputation was so bad that it was decided in 1894 to hand over the responsibility of the city asylums to the state. That was tour guide Kay Crombie, standing near the East River in New York City. I'm on her Psychiatric History of New York walking tour. The Psychiatric History of New York is just one of Crombie's tours. Her other tours, Death in New York and Hellgate, all have the same sort of dark tone as the Psychiatric History of New York. And then it just kept spiraling. I realized that I had a theme, and the theme was what the city doesn't want you to see. Crombie started researching these aspects of New York City's unglamorous past during the pandemic, which resulted in her book, Death in New York. Um, A lot of the islands in and around New York have a history of of, of potter's fields and uh, psychiatric institutions. And so these places that I was exploring for the research for the book intersected with the history of psychiatry. And so that became a tour, The Psychiatric History of New York, which is also my next book. The Psychiatric History of New York tour takes place throughout the Upper East Side. But Crombie begins by the East River, where everyone on the tour can look out and see the deserted islands that used to be home to psychiatric hospitals. New York is a very compact city. I think you can still see and feel remnants of the past past and in close proximity and so particularly with the way that that tour is is laid out uh, as you experience when you're standing on the east river you're looking at the psychiatric islands of, of past and present then the tour moves into the streets of the upper east side so william payne whitney cousin of george uh, he died in 1927 and bequeathed 20 million dollars to have the payne whitney psychiatric clinic built The neighborhood has a complex history with psychiatric care. And Crombie connects the dots between that past and other contemporary and sometimes controversial medical practices. The psychoanalytic explosion in New York City was was pretty much centered initially on the Upper East Side. um, And that led me down other avenues of uh, the pharmaceutical industry and the corruption within the pharmaceutical industry and also prescription addiction and it, it, it bled into deinstitutionalization. I realized I could tell these stories in at different points within a walking distance. Crombie says that educating people about these lesser known aspects of New York City is important because it's important to her. I think it's it's just a selfish thing. It's important to me. It's <laughs> it's it's the things that I gravitate towards rather than general interest. And they're far more exciting because ultimately you're exploring the the forbidden. Crombie says she's drawn to the darker aspects of history and finds that many people on her tours are too. Good history is like listening to great gossip. 
and it's those darker aspects that that me and many other people are are, are drawn to simply because they're not at the forefront of presentation. You have to dig a little deeper to find the more interesting aspects of history. And because of the gossip element of history, Crombie says she tries to sprinkle in historical tidbits about celebrities in her tours whenever she can. But by the 1930s, this was seen as the upscale alternative to, to Bellevue. And a couple of well-known people checked in. Marilyn Monroe, when she got divorced from um, uh, Arthur Miller, the playwright. According to Crombie, most of the people that go on her tours are New Yorkers. She says that since her tours are so niche, they help people connect with the city in a new way and show them a side they haven't experienced before. For WFUV News, I'm Isabel Danzis. In honor of Women's History Month, WFUV will be featuring a series of stories that explore complex women's health issues. This week, WFUV's Taylor Masada talks to two female athletes about the struggles and joys of competing as a mother and how the world of sports can better support women before, during, and after pregnancy. Over the course of Women's History Month, I spoke with mothers who continue to lace up their running shoes. They do this because, for them, running is freedom. It gives them the opportunity to change the landscape of sports for mothers for the better. Alicia Montano has racked up quite the resume. NCAA champion, U.S. champion, and an Olympian for the 800 meters. She made sure that that resume included children. In 2014, Montano famously ran at U.S. Nationals eight months pregnant. And then she won the 800-meter national title just a year after having her first child. She said that it was a statement to show the world that women could thrive in both their athletic careers and motherhood. Her talent was the perfect platform to do that. Sports is a microcosm of what's happening in the world. When people see social impact in sports, people see social impact in society and in the world. And so I wanted to use my ability to run fast over two laps for good. Montano has also done plenty of work for mothers off the track. In 2019, she released an op-ed to the New York Times calling out Nike for not providing their female athletes with pregnancy protections. And then postpartum, the contract standardizations did not allow for there to be expansion for maternity leave, meaning that our performance expectations still continued on throughout pregnancy and postpartum. Everybody who watched me run in 2014 saw that I finished dead last, beautifully, wonderfully, first pregnant person, but it was not something that was going to check the box from a performance standpoint in these contracts. One year later, Montano founded Am Mother a nonprofit organization that pushes for mothers' full participation in sport. This includes installing lactation stations for breastfeeding at U.S. national meets and providing grants for individual athletes. Montano lights up when asked about her kids. She knows that getting on the track sets a great example for them. Oh my gosh, my kids are so great. I mean, I think the thing for me as a mom is just recognizing how important it is for our kids to see themselves thriving and how we are supporting them. Jessica Ewald agrees. Her running journey started after the birth of her fourth child. Having survived extreme weight gain, diabetes, and four C-sections, she's completed 34 races in the past year. Um, I started running um, after I lost 100 pounds. I walked my dog and I ran from one stop sign to the next stop sign and I came home and I cried because I was so excited about it. And then I ran a block, and then I ran a mile, and now, of course, I'm up to marathons. When asked about how society can better support competing mothers, Ewald answered with no hesitation. 
my first instinct is that it shouldn't even be a question. I mean, it, mothers, fathers, what's, what's the difference of anybody that's wanting to compete? Ewald just competed in the New York City Half Marathon this past Sunday. She represented Every Mother Counts, a fundraiser for maternal care. But what matters most to Ewald isn't her results, but the way her performances influence her kids. One of her sons often hops in on her runs. And then there's a there's a one mile race that really pushes my son. He got a seven minute mile and he just started running. So that was amazing for he was very excited about that. So just the fact that he likes to run with me because I'm running, being a role model to my children. That's all that that's all that really matters. I'm Taylor Massetta, WFUV News. That was WFUV's Taylor Massetta talking to mothers about what it's like to compete before, during and after childbirth. And in another installment of our Women's History Month series, we look at how New York City supports women with HIV and AIDS. National Women and Girls HIV and AIDS Awareness Day is recognized in March each year. But for organizations who focus on supporting women with HIV and AIDS, the work takes more than a single day. The Iris House in Harlem is an agency that offers support, prevention, and education services to women affected by HIV and AIDS. For the first part of her series on HIV and AIDS awareness, WFUV's Leah Mallory speaks with the executive director of the Iris House and women who have been helped by the agency. There are more than one million people in the United States living with HIV, and more than 250,000 of them are women. However, women living with HIV are often upstaged by their male counterparts. Women of color black women in particular, make up the largest demographic of women living with HIV. There are many challenges women face when it comes to receiving proper information on HIV and treatment services. But the Iris House in Harlem is changing the way HIV is handled. The Iris House is an agency that offers preventative, health, and educational services to women, families, and underserved communities affected by HIV and AIDS in New York. For Executive Director Ingrid Floyd, the Iris House is unique because it is the first of its kind. We are one of the country's few organizations and first organizations formed to focus on women who are living with HIV. And we were formed at a time when there wasn't much of a focus on women as people were more focused on gay men who were becoming infected with HIV. The Iris House offers a range of services, from emotional and mental health resources to food and to housing, all to help women better handle their HIV diagnosis. Floyd says that having these services on demand leads to better health outcomes. She uses housing as an example. They're able to live in our housing, have a stable stable place to stay, and we definitely know that when people are stably housed, again, they're able to better focus on making better decisions, better judgment, because that's one less thing that, as a woman, you have to worry about. Floyd says their services aim to help clients reach an undetectable viral load. This is when there is a low amount of the HIV virus in the blood, to the point where it's almost undetectable. This viral load only decreases if clients are on medication and can only be tracked by frequent testing. Floyd says that the Iris House has an over 80% viral suppression rate. 
She says that this is largely due to their emphasis on medical support. We know that people who are undetectable are unable to transmit the virus. And how we do that is that we make sure that clients are, one, connected to medical care. So a big part of our work is making sure that we meet with their doctors, we meet with their providers. And then we also want to make sure that they have kind of those other needs met. And again, whether those be food, whether those be housing, substance use services, mental health services. Floyd says that the environment at the Iris House is warm, welcoming, and supportive. You know, we greet each other like a family, and and what that does is there's more accountability to your family than there are to others. So our clients are very accountable to us, and we are accountable to them in making sure that they can reach the goals that they've set for themselves. Lucille Grant, a client at the Iris House, can attest to this. She says that after finding the Iris House, she finally felt like she fit in. I met people that I looked like, you know, and I was surprised. I'm like, wow, you know, there are other people that I fit in the category with them. And they were very inviting. When Grant first learned her diagnosis years ago, she was angry. She said confronting the HIV virus felt like an impossible battle. At first I was questioning if I could do that, if I had enough strength to be shackled to a pill bottle for the rest of my life. Grant started looking for treatment facilities, but found most of them to be uninviting and unrelatable. You know, they were dark, dreary-looking, like, little closet spaces. And if you are not in a good mindset and then you go into some place like those places where it's dreary and and dark-looking, that just depressed you more. But the Iris House is where Grant found her sense of belonging. It made me more comfortable, and it made me realize that there were other people like me, and then there were other people that were in a worse-off situation than I was. So I could stop feeling sorry for myself. But even having found a safe space, Grant says she has dealt with ignorance throughout her diagnosis. I've been around some really nice people. And then I've also been around some people that are ignorant. And even though they know the science behind it and the fact that, oh, you can't get it from drinking out of a glass or you can't get it from eating out the plate or me touching something or things like that. And even though they know it, they still have this mindset that, oh, you like contaminated. They have to stay away from you. She says the reason for this ignorance is because of stigma surrounding HIV as well as false conceptions about HIV and AIDS. And they need to stop pushing this narrative that it's only like in the gay community or you have to be on drugs to be infected or you had to be a loose or immoral person and that's why you became positive. And that's contrary to the fact because I'm none of those. Floyd, the executive director, says the best way to stop the stigma is to talk about it. It's one of those things that we don't often talk about and we don't talk about enough because for some reason we think that it's gone away. It definitely has not gone away. It's important for people to get regular HIV tests, to to normalize HIV testing. Let's also destigmatize it by comforting and being there for people who are living with HIV so they don't feel that they are being stigmatized because they're someone living with HIV. Floyd says that women must be included in the fight against HIV. There's a lot more that has to happen in order for that to happen, and a part of that is we have to make sure women are part of the solution and making sure that we continue to raise the voices of women who are living with HIV as well as women who are allies and advocates in this work. 
There is no doubt that HIV is a difficult diagnosis, but the Iris House is showing women that they can still lead a complete and fulfilling life. What would you say to women who also have HIV AIDS and are struggling with their diagnosis? Me personally, I have this mantra to myself and I say it to myself. I treat HIV as three letters in the alphabet. I'm not going to be scared of it. I'm not going to let it rule my life. I have HIV, but HIV doesn't have me. Grant's mantra is a testimony to the manageable nature of HIV and the determined attitudes of those who have been diagnosed. What once was a death sentence is now a manageable chronic condition with proper medication. The Iris House is helping women to do this day in and day out. To learn more about the Iris House, you can go to their website at irishouse.org. For more information about how HIV and AIDS is impacting women, listen to part two of the story next week when I will be talking to Dr. Stella Sappho and Jackie Kilmer about the medical side of HIV and how medical professionals are confronting the disease and stigma. With WFUV News, I'm Leah Mallory. That was WFUV's Leah Mallory talking about the Iris House in New York City and their work to help women affected by HIV and AIDS. You can listen to part two of this two-part series about women in New York City with HIV and AIDS next Wednesday, March 29th. Willa Kim was a groundbreaking costume designer for Broadway, opera, ballet, film, and television. She died in 2016, but her memory lives on in her innovative outfits that changed the way we dress bodies in motion on stage. Now, the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts is celebrating Willa's legacy with an exhibition featuring her sketches, costumes, and, of course, stories. WFUV's Megan Oftermat has more. It isn't immediately obvious what Broadway shows Victor Victoria, Danson, and Will Rogers Follies have in common. But the minute you set eyes on the costumes, it becomes clear. You know, there's the shows that I think of as Willa Kim shows, like Victor Victoria and, and Danson and Will Rogers Follies. That's Doug Reeside. He's the curator of the Billy Rose Theater Division at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, the home of the wondrous Willa Kim exhibit. Willa was a beautiful artist, so she could draw very evocative sketches, which are by themselves absolutely beautiful. And that's Bobby Owen, the curator of the exhibit. Owen is also a recently retired professor emerita from the Department of Dramatic Art at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her career really began in the 1960s, the early 1960s. But in 1981, she won a Tony Award for Sophisticated Ladies, and the 1980s and 90s really belonged to her. Willa Kim was born and raised in California, where she began her career as a painter. Eventually, she began assisting costume designers Barbara Karinska and Raoul Pena Dubois. She followed them to New York and, as Doug Reeside explains it, wound up playing a role in designing some of Broadway's most memorable productions. She was the assistant on the original production of The Music Man, and there's drafts in her collection that suggest that Mary and the Librarian's uh, costume was at least very heavily influenced by her initial sketches and research, too. 
Eventually, Willa Kim would alter the artistic landscape with her own creations. With the production of Wee Wiss, which was a dance production in 1971, was the first use of painted spandex on a dancer's body. It's Willa Kim who brought that use to the theater. She didn't just change how we use fabric in productions. Her practice was always to watch a dancer move before she would design the costumes for it. She changed how we think about fabric in motion. She was very gifted at not constraining movement, but rather enhancing movement. That marriage, if you will, of fabric to body, of color to fabric is something that she was especially skilled at and known for. That relationship between performer and costume was something Kim could see long before the production hit the stage. So Willa would just be doing sketches. She would be trying to catch the movement of the dancers. And that's something visitors to the exhibit will have the chance to witness firsthand by looking at Kim's archives. I think there's a script page from Legs Diamond where she's reading the script page and she's doodling in the margins. So you can see the costume ideas start to come as she's reading that written word. And it isn't just her sketches and notes people will have access to. So you get to see her original design, in many cases a photograph of it on an individual, and then the costume. There's even a wall of textiles curated to honor Kim's unique use of fabric. You know, Willa never used a piece of fabric that came straight out of the fabric store. It always had to be dyed, or it had to be distressed, or it had to be beaded, or it had to be painted, or it had to be manipulated in some way or other. And they'll have her less conventional costumes on display as well, including an outfit she created for a Super Bowl commercial back in the 1980s. There's a salad costume. It is pasta salad. You will just find it rather amazing. Regina can dress up the taste of any salad. Pasta dressed in Regina red wine vinegar with garlic. Regina wine vinegar is what the best dressed salads are wearing. The exhibit paints a portrait of a woman who created a canon of work that changed the world of costume design. And it amplifies her dedication to her craft, which she continued well into her last decade alive. In her 90s, right, she would often wonder why people weren't calling her up to ask her to do more work because she was so anxious and ready to do that. Visitors will have the opportunity to browse the Willa Kim archives until August of this year. It's a rare opportunity to shine a spotlight on someone who wasn't necessarily center stage, but who theater simply wouldn't be the same without. So the exhibition in some ways is also a tribute to all of those makers who work in New York City. With WFUV News, I'm Megan Oftermat. That was WFUV's Megan Oftermat talking about the wondrous Willa Kim exhibit at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts on now through August 19th. For more information, visit nypl.org. That's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV Newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV's What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews, just like the ones you heard, exclusively from FUV. 
You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Isabel Danzis. And I'm Shana Walsh.